0: Hi, you're listening to WRBH Radio 88.3 FM. This is your host of New Orleans by Mouth, Chef Amy Sins. On the line with me today, I have a chef and book author who is joining us, uh, Chef Todd Richards, Richards, who just wrote a book called Soul, A Chef's Culinary Evolution. So thanks for joining me today, Chef Todd.
1: Thank you for having
0: me. Well, so I have to tell my listeners that when I got the book in the mail, I immediately fell in love just looking at the cover because collard greens are my jam. (laughs) And (laughs) and the cover being so green and beautiful, and uh, I couldn't wait to open the book. So why don't you tell us a little bit, um, you know, the book is called Soul, and immediately I started thinking soul, soul food, food for the soul. What were, were your thoughts with that?
1: I, I will say uh, all of the above. Uh, when, when I came up with the title Soul, I was really expressing uh, an art form of food that is traditionally cooked by African-Americans or known to be cooked by African-Americans, that really uh, translates itself into a pure or true American food. I think soul food uh, along with Southern food is the basis of all American cuisine. And what I really wanted to highlight in the book and highlight in in the title is that there's a lot of traditional ways of cooking foods in America, but we also are part of an innovation movement where things progress and can move uh, far along. And I think you get that right away in the first chapter being collard greens, which is also my favorite uh, vegetable as well.
0: Now, I have to ask you, as a kid, did you love collard greens or did you wait until later in life to embrace them?
1: You know, the food I hated as a kid was Brussels sprouts. I love them now, but collard greens was, you know, really part of the, the... the way of growing up. There there wasn't a week or a holiday or anything like that in which we did not have collard greens.
0: And even if you didn't like them, your mama probably made you sit at the table until you finished eating
1: them. <laughs> well, well, I think the way that our family, they were always good. So it really didn't really didn't matter. You know, you always ate them.
0: Well, so, you know, when I think about, um, you know, when you said a pure, true American food and, you know, when we think Southern food, when we think Cajun and Creole food, when we think all these regional cuisines, you know, they're all rooted in, you know, flavors and and family tradition, but also things that have come to us, ingredients that have come from other places, other people's family traditions that have come from other places. And uh, I, I just loved how you said, you know, it's, it's, you know, the basis of some of our cuisines. So talk a little bit about when you think about, you know, soul food and how it's defined, like what cultures and flavors are are incorporated into that?
1: And mainly when I think of soul food, of course, I, you know, I think of, of West African um, heritage and, and, and understanding that that coast and how things are prepared and how they translate to The South. One one interesting term that I I really love uh, exploring when we're talking about soul food and Southern food, that there is no cuisine in America called Northern food. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's an oddity. So we're really talking about a time, place and and ingredients that are migratory across the country. If you look at Southern food and soul food uh, in the South, there's no term soul food in the South. By the way, most people think that there is, but there is no term for that. That's a northern term. And when you get to New York, you have one set of soul food. You get to Chicago, it gets a little bit different, and you get to the West Coast. West Coast soul food has more Latin and Asian influence in it than it necessarily does have Southern influence in it. So we're talking about, again, a cuisine that spreads across the country that is really rooted in West African traditions.
0: And when you say West Africa, I know here in New Orleans, uh, particularly the flavors of of Senegal and Gambia were kind of the basis. Uh, Whenever we're looking at the country as a whole, you know, are there certain areas that are that you say this is the region that is focused on these particular flavors or these particular areas?
1: Well, I look at it from uh, a, 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 you know, we start, you know, explaining the whole coast of Africa. It can be a, 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 a daunting task <laughs> for most people to understand. So I kind of explain it in the terms of my family. My my father's family came out of the Louisiana area. My mom's family came out of Alabama through North Carolina, through the Ohio, and, and, and they both met in Chicago. And when you look at things like rice, um, where my mom would put butter in the water when she cooked rice, and my dad would never put butter in the water when he cooked rice. And so we're, we're talking about, you know, a, a area of something as simple as rice where you have such a fierce debate in our household because my dad will only make his rice for his red beans and rice. He would not allow my mom to make it. That we're saying <laughs> that if you look at, you know, the, the coast of West Africa, that there's so many, you know, people along that coast that you're picking up so many traditions. That's really how we interpret them in our family. It makes it such an American story.
0: Well, so how do we know, you know, when we're, we have family members coming from different places and settling in places, you know, it's really easy for those of us who, you know, are fortunate to live in places that these cuisines kind of started to evolve to judge other places. Right. So right. so what are the rules? Like, who's right, your mom or your dad? How? Well, you
1: know, what are the rules? Uh, well, rice was used in our household for many different purposes. So rice could have been for cereal in the morning. Uh, it could have been used just as a dish of buttered rice with black pepper. Uh, it could be used in fried rice. Uh, it was used in many different ways. So it depends on who was actually preparing the meal, how the rice was prepared. Uh, My dad was more of a traditionalist. My mom was more of innovative and modernist in her cooking. So I had the best of both worlds. And that's how I can tell the story of that juxtapose between buttered, you know, watered rice and just regular watered rice.
0: Well, and, you know, when you when you said earlier on, you said, you know, it's about tradition and innovation. And I, you know, that it really goes back to the roots of your family, I guess.
1: My family is so. I mean, every single birthday, holiday, Christmas, um, uh, bar mitzvah. I don't care what it was. It was always at our house, and and just the cooking that went on in that house um, was unbelievable. And, and if you look at the book, probably in um, the first page on the cover, there's me holding a birthday cake, and it was my birthday. However, I had like you know, a couple aunts, a few cousins on there. My great-grandparents were celebrating their 61st anniversary. So you can imagine that having this size of a family, how many people we will be cooking for at this one time. So it, it was never a given time that we wouldn't have 75 or 80 people at the house during the summertime where we're barbecuing and things like that. Well, is
0: that what instilled your love of food and your desire to cook?
1: I, I always... The, the love of cooking is really how we bring people closer together and and I just know that for my family uh, that when we you know started spreading our wings and moving farther apart, the less time we cooked together the less time we spent together and now we're having this this uh coming back together. And it's all centered around food. It's centered around the book. You know, we did the book launch in Chicago. I, you know, I've had some family members I haven't seen in 20 years that came through. And we're talking about food again and who's going to host Christmas and who's going to host those things and really how we bring you know us back to the center. It's always been a responsibility of food and beverage, even in professional settings, to bring people closer back to the center. And that's what food did for my family. It was the centering point where we all gathered.
0: Well, are you finding that families are, you know, for a while I feel like we were really crazy, we were really busy, we were all focused on our technology. Are you finding that now families are starting to say, hey, we need to spend more face time together and food's the I way to do it?
1: people are understanding that also that delicious food is a requirement to, to be happy. And when you have something that delicious and you share it with someone else, it brings for a happy environment. If you go to a restaurant where you see a lot of people breaking up in the restaurant, the food's probably not that good. You know, <laughs> you know, it, it's really just like, why would you break up with somebody with a delicious plate of fried chicken in front of you or, or, you know, nice slice of pot- I that marry somebody happen. with
0: a plate of fried chicken.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So that just doesn't happen. So it, it's a requirement that food is delicious, especially in our household. And you, that you know during that time period as a kid, you know people would bring dishes over, and if they were not delicious, they weren't invited back. You know, or you can come back, but don't bring anything, or, or or stop the store and pick up a bottle of whiskey or something, but do not bring any, you know, <laughs> undelicious food to our house. And and that's what people are doing. They are actually just centering themselves around delicious food, and looking for ways to share their stories uh, with each other.
0: And I totally agree with that. And I look back, you know, at my childhood and I, my whole life, and you go. There are dishes that evoke so much memory, whether it was a good time or a bad time. You remember how important, you know, for my family, a a sauce piquant is or, you know, a gumbo or something that you go, this is what we have together when we celebrate. And it starts to kind of be like when you grow up and you have your own family, those foods are still our celebratory foods. Are there things that you look back in your childhood and you say their life was not complete without this at a meal?
1: I, I would say is that my background is in fine dining. Uh, you, know, you know, Rich Carlson's Four Seasons ran a 5 diamond restaurant, uh, one of 42 in the world for five years. There's nothing that still brings me closer to home than barbecue. It was the time in which I could stand next to my dad as a four or five year old and help him in the kitchen and learn things that people take for granted. Now, when I look at how my dad will organize um, his barbecue where he would season the ribs uh, and then fill the sink full of water and put all the chickens in there and season the chickens and start cooking all the all the meats on the grill. And then when they were done, he would put the chickens on the grill. So they might have been sitting in that, you know, in that salt solution for a couple of hours. So my dad was actually brining chicken when I was like four or five years old. And it's like now everyone wants to brine all the birds. So I was like, well, hell, my dad showed me how to do this when I was four <laughs> years old. You know, it's just those things like that that those memories of standing there, uh, just watching the way people would react to food and how. They, we never ran out. That was the most amazing thing to me, that we never ran out of anything.
0: Well, and, you know, it, it's so exciting to, you know, think back and go, hey, you know, as, as a kid, I my I used to tell my mom all the time, no, you're wrong. Or she would answer a question and I would be, you know, combative. And then I, I look back now and I go, golly, they were brilliant because now it's in vogue like brining (laughs) and you realize that they were doing it right all along and uh maybe we just weren't always absorbing it (laughs) in the moment well so chef I'm looking I'm flipping through the book and it is just absolutely gorgeous and you know I'm as I look at the recipes I see what you mean about that combination of tradition and innovation because some people might think that you know, you have to be a purist and you have to stay to certain flavors. But I got all excited when I saw that there's like a collard green ramen. And then you have things, um, you know, other things like salmon croquettes. And we would say, well, salmon's really, you don't catch that below I-10. Um, oh, so so talk a little bit about how to incorporate the flavors that you love with ingredients that are available in other places.
1: Well, and particularly with the collard green ramen dish, that's another dish from childhood. My my dad was very frugal. And my mom had this love for Chinese food. And there was this Chinese soup place that had um, this warming soup. So it was noodles, pork belly, uh, half-boiled egg, scallions. And my dad, we had something left over in the refrigerator, had to be utilized also. So he would heat up the collard greens. So you can imagine you have a bowl of noodles, uh, pork belly, egg, and scallions, and you take collard greens and put it on top of that. Then what are we talking about? We're talking about basically ramen. you know? Yes. In, in a sense. So— the stretch is never that far. And then also when you look at something like fried chicken, fried chicken is the most universal food in the world. Every culture has it. Everyone does it. And what are the ingredients in it? And and by taking finding the commonplace of of what someone might put in their fried chicken, where, you know, if you it's more curry in one person's or more buttermilk or more cider vinegar or mustard seeds or something like that. Utilizing other people's interpretations of dishes that you love to make yourself really opens it up to a whole gamut of recipes that you can come up with and still not lose the traditional family values or family ways of cooking that you started with.
0: And I I feel like we could talk about fried chicken for two hours on the radio. (laughs) So tell me, what is your secret to perfect fried chicken?
1: Uh, well, the number one thing I tell everyone is, is make sure you start with quality chicken, you know. Uh, so, you know, when you get to the store and the package is all sticky, I don't think you should use that package of chicken. Um, number two is make sure that you're cooking the ch- chicken at room temperature or close to room temperature. Most of the time people pull it straight out the refrigerator, season it and put it straight in the oil and it will never get done, you know, perfectly. Um, use a cast iron skillet um, if you're using the skillet to, to cook with. Um, because it transfers heat correctly. Uh, If you want to get into some technical things of which flour is the best to use, I use gluten-free flour uh, (laughs) for fried chicken. And the reason why is if you think about the way chicken travels, if you put regular AP flour chicken into a box and close the lid, it'll steam and so it'll the crunch factor is gone. Yes. With gluten-free flour, you know, it can uh, repel moisture very well. So every bite is super crunchy, super crispy, and it absorbs any type of sauce that you want to put on top of it. So that's that's really all um, my, you know, tricks in the bag when it comes to fried chicken.
0: But I think that's that's very enlightening, and I would have never considered gluten-free flour as a choice unless I was cooking it for someone who was gluten-free. So that's that's pretty awesome. So
1: now if you use AP flour, you can add, you know, cornstarch to it as well, and they'll stay crispy. But I just find with gluten-free gluten flour and adding just a little bit more cornstarch to it that the chicken always stays crunchy and crispy. And you think about it from a standpoint in Asian cuisine, we look at things like tempura and stuff like that, they always stay crunchy. They always are are, are crispy. So they don't use AP flour for that either. They use the rice flour or cornstarch. So, again, it's borrowing from someone else's ideas and incorporating them into my own.
0: I love it. I love it. And one of the things I really liked about the book were like right before every recipe, there's a little paragraph and it kind of talks about, you know, your ideas or a story and a little bit about that particular recipe as well as a few little tricks and tips. Now, when you sat down and said, I'm going to write this book and I'm going to call it Soul. What would, did you already have all the recipes or did you go, I have to really go through the file cabinet of everything that I have and put something together? How did that process go?
1: Well, really, what took place is I started sitting, I sat down uh, after service one night uh, and started writing and wrote the book basically the way the co- from cover to cover, I wrote it that way. So at the end result, we had 156 recipes and then we did the recipe taste uh, uh, testing and six of them. I just didn't think they were right for the book. And that's how we got down to 150. So all those recipes are basically chronologically done based off the seasons and times that I was writing the book.
0: I love that. Are there any recipes that you go, okay, if somebody gets this book, this is the first thing you have got to try.
1: Well, you know, it really depends on the season so much. But I really tell people that I look at the tomato salad as the first one uh, I tell people to go to. Because if you learn how to slice a tomato properly, that means you can, you know, carve a steak properly. You can fillet a fish. And really just making sure that their knife skills are on point. Enough so that they can have ease in slicing and dicing and doing those things. So I want to make sure that they started out with 10 digits, you know, in their hands, <laughs> that they end with 10 digits on their hands. But, I... but other than that, I just say that the, the recipes are really starting with the traditional. And then you can find so much freedom in going other ways, you know, with the rest of the recipes.
0: Well, and you know, if you start with traditional, whether you know you're doing classic French cuisine or any other type of classic cuisine, when you start with traditional and you learn the foundation, the sky's the limit. Once you get those skills together and you you understand the thought process behind composing a dish, and it seems like as you progress through the book, it you know, that's kind of happening.
1: I, I would I would agree, and I also was saying that. That from a technique standpoint, that soul food is as technically driven as you know French food, you know, or French cuisine. When you look at duck confit, you know, is preserving duck and duck fat, and you look at cooking collard greens with ham hock, and when you know the fat seals that pot on top to serve all the greens at the bottom, we're talking about preservation techniques that are really, you know, as ancient as time. And we understand that they run the same parallel or the same gamut where we're saying that fat is preserving food. So then you take a lot of the mystique of soul food out of it because it's, it's the same technique across the board.
0: Well, so let's talk real quickly about something that is very near and dear to my heart that I noticed mm-hmm. um, there's a good bit of in the book, and that is pickles. Yes. So, what is, do you? What is it about pickles that a makes you love them, and b, how do you incorporate pickled things into dishes?
1: Well, pickles to me are are the balancing part of of food. When you think about, you know, a lot of cuisines or a lot of dishes that could be either rich or they can be a little not bland, but don't have that 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 for that bite to it that pickles and i would say hot sauce both in that same parallel they give a lot of acidity to dishes and by providing that acidity it gives balances to meat you know meat you put in your mouth protein you chew it three times and those flavors are gone you know the best sandwiches are when you put the pickles on that's why they always serve pickles with burgers yes. you know so you can have that flavor continue moving forward and then also with my dad again who was a very frugal person most people will never ever think about pickling collard green stems you know it just doesn't you know and their mind doesn't make any sense but my dad wouldn't throw anything away so he would you know you know shape um, shape them down with a a peeler and we will pickle those collard green stems and they will chop and there will be another relish or a garnish on top of the collard greens also went on sandwiches we use it for everything so it's a little bit of both there's a little bit of flavor in there and it's also a way of preserving items that normally we would discard or that the season might run out quickly.
0: And I, I Whenever I, I saw pickled collard greens, I got so excited because I am kind of a crazy person when it comes to food waste and trying to prevent it. And right. I will pickle just about anything I can and right. see what happens. Is there anything that you've pickled that you've gone, mm, I'm, maybe that's not meant to be pickled?
1: Or... I've, I've learned that more so with um with soft things that I you know it's not really necessarily that it doesn't work it's like you might have the wrong type of vinegar and most people you know really you know think vinegar is vinegar but the acidity level of vinegar can range so much and you know using balsamic vinegar or h balsamic vinegar in a pickling recipe really is doesn't work it's too right. high in sugar and things like that so you know it's really understanding what's the reaction what are you trying to accomplish You know, with the right type of vinegar, I think in the South, we have the best type of vinegar for doing multiple things is apple cider vinegar, because it ranges, you know, between four and six percent acidity, which is always good for especially quick pickles, quick pickled items.
0: And is there anything that other than collard greens that people have gone, oh, my goodness, you you pickled that?
1: Um, well I mean, still I'm still amazed that people don't know about like pickled eggs. I mean, pickled eggs, I, I mean, those as a kid when we used to go down to Arkansas uh to Hot Springs and you know stop by the grocery store, they have that uh you know talking about more of the traditional recipes like pickled pig feet, you know. That's you know people think that's rural or very southern or very, you know, African American and it's not. I mean, you know people have been pickling you know, awful you know, from the test of time, that's the only way you can really preserve it or you salt cure it. So I, I, I really just think that that people are moving away from the cellophane generation, which I call is when you walk into the store and everything's wrapped in cellophane. And you just buy it. People are actually paying attention to how they cook food. What's the technique behind it and what's the story behind it and how can I utilize it all and not have any food waste?
0: And, I, and that's how we connect. And I feel like we are connecting more with our food It kind of started when we wanted to know the farmer that it came from, but now we're realizing that there's a whole lot more to the process, and it's about how you take care and hold and love that food over the process of its its span in your kitchen.
1: It is the true uh, form of sacrifice uh, is to cook for someone, and it's the most humbling experience uh to me as a person that cooks on a daily basis that when people cook for me I am in, in so much gratitude uh to them because most of the time I don't even feel like cooking for myself when I'm really done. You know my wife she she does a lot of the cooking at at home. Um you know I go to people's houses they always you know ask me, "Hey, what do you want?" you know and it's such a a humbling experience to see the commitment of people having uh, to delicious food right now, it, it's the way the world should always be.
0: I agree. Well, chef, we only have a couple minutes left, and I want to kind of let you tell everybody where they can get your book and um, and how they can find out more about you.
1: I'm a big supporter of local bookstores. I think any bookstore that carries a large Selection of cookbooks and scrapes, but also awesome because we live in the internet generation, they can pick up the book at Barnes & Noble, uh, of course, Amazon, of course, or wherever books are sold.
0: Awesome. And Chef Todd, if they want to come eat some of your food that you cook, where can they find you?
1: I am uh, fortunate to be, if you're traveling, in Concourse E at One Flu South in Atlanta uh, Hartsville Airport, Concourse D with chicken and beer, and Richard Southern Fried, which is located in the Krog Street Market in the center of Atlanta.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate your time. For our listeners out there, uh, we've been talking to Todd Richards, who is the a chef and author of Soul, A Chef's Culinary Evolution and 150 Recipes. So go out there, go to your local bookstore here in New Orleans, get a copy, and start on page one and work your way through. You've been listening to WRBH Radio 88.3 FM. This is your host of New Orleans by Mouth, Chef Amy Sins. Until next time, ciao.